Okay, let's go ahead and begin our class uh, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the thunder showers that we received. Um, our community is in desperate need of rain. Uh, I just remember going on one of my walks, and I passed this uh, drainage ditch that's almost always full, and the last several times it's, it's been pretty murky and muddy. And uh, so, Lord, we need rain for our potato crops and the rivers low, and uh, we need rain so to keep the, uh, the fire index down so that we can, uh, you know, have fires at night and uh, keep the bugs away when we want to set out on our decks. So, Lord, we thank you for the thunder showers that you brought our way, and it's always amazing to see uh, you display your power through nature, and uh, just, just the weather patterns are, are just so amazing. Uh, thank you, Lord, that the rain just kind of cooled things off a bit because we are, um, you know, we are in the, the the dead heat of summer in the most hottest part of our year, and uh, this time we we really forget <laughs> what we went through in the winter time, and a lot of times we're complaining of how cold it is and how much it snows, and in times like that we quickly forget about those things. Lord, we. Uh, we have a lot of people that are absent. Uh, some people are sick, and as my wife being an RN, she said that there is something going around. So we pray, Lord, that you would just bless those uh, who could not be with us this evening for our Bible study, Lord, that you would just touch their bodies and bring restoration and healing, help them to rest. Help them, Lord, if at all possible, to be able to catch up with this lesson when it is posted online. And uh, Lord, just... Uh, uh, Make them well. For those that are here, thank you, Lord, for the health and strength you've given them to be in our midst tonight. And we pray that you would just open up our hearts and open up our minds so that we may understand and fully take in your word so that we can know what your word is trying to say to us, so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds. The Bible is such an amazing book, an amazing piece of literature because it's supernatural. It comes directly from you. It's not like you know, Moby Dick or War and Peace or Little Women, those might be great books, and they might be timeless in a sense, but the Bible is always relevant, even though it was written thousands of years ago. And the reason that it's relevant is not because it's up with the times and up with culture, but because it deals with the heart. It deals with human nature, which has been unchanged since the fall of man. And so it's always relevant, and we just thank you for your word that it is your instruction manual for our life. And uh, Lord, help us to walk in the footsteps of Yeshua, Jesus our Messiah, by walking and following in the word. He came that, that and lived it out before us perfectly to be that blueprint, template, that example on how to, to live out the word correctly. And in this day and age when, when uh, morals are, are, are relative and, and the lines between black and, black and white are, are blurred and grayed, we need uh, an anchor, the anchor of the word of God. We need that mooring, that, that security, that foundation, that rock. Uh, because uh, society, uh, mentally and spiritually, is just like a, a wind or just like a, a boat that is tossed on the waves to and fro, and, and it has no direction, and it's blown all about, and it changes with the times. But Lord, you are God, and you have the right, because you are creator and God, to deem what is right and deem what is wrong. And so they are moral absolutes in this life and in this world. And uh, all we have to do is look to your word, and, and we know exactly where we stand. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means in our life. And uh, just give us a deeper appreciation, a deeper zeal, a deeper love for your word, as that is our spiritual milk and bread and meat. It is our spiritual sustenance. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins and everything and where we failed you. And, Lord, I ask that you would just help us as we embark on this new stage um, uh, in our church uh, where we are uh, praying, uh, dedicating an hour each day out of our, uh, out of our lives to pray for our church that, um, that we would get, uh, that we would get a, a, a desire to see revival in our church and in our community. And we would want to see our church grow. And, and Lord, that through prayer uh, for our church that we would be able to see things transform and change before our very eyes for the honor and glory of your name because a church that prays together stays together. And Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. And that reminds me, since we are on chapter 3, I'll go ahead and read to you 
the memory verse that we're going to uh, be quizzed on at the end of chapter 3. And it's a very familiar one, may not be familiar in the New American Standard. Most people may have memorized it in the King James. But the New American Standard Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It's pretty much the same as the King James, but the end is uh, he will direct your paths. That's what it is in the King James. Other than that, I think it's pretty much the same. So let's go ahead and begin with, with uh, verse 1, which verse 1 is a lot like verse 1 of chapter 2. So let me read to you the, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and then I'll read chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And so uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commands within you. So they're very similar. And I think maybe that's why uh, that uh, the people that were putting together the chapters and verses in regards to the Bible decided to make that break because it just sounded like a new topic heading, a new subject. Because uh, the way the Bible was written, there is no chapter and verses. The chapter and verses came later after the Bible was compiled, and the chapter and verses were simply added to make it easier for us as we study the Word and study the text. Uh, so it was a much harder in Yeshua's day, in Jesus' day, when most uh, rabbis uh, in his day had all five books of Moses memorized by heart. And, the, and it was, I'm not saying that it was easy for them, but what made it easier is that Hebrew uh, has a cadence and a rhythm to it. So if you ever attend a Jewish synagogue, they'll be reading uh, from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, each Saturday. And so each time they read, there's a special way that that particular portion of the scripture is read. And it's kind of a chant, kind of a sing-songy way. So if you memorize the cadence and rhythm, it's probably easier for you to, to remember the verse uh, or the, you know, the passages and everything. So uh, that was quite a feat with no chapter and verses in Jesus' time for them to memorize because you see Jesus all through the Gospels uh, take bits and pieces from Deuteronomy and Psalms, which were his favorite books because he quoted from those more than any other books of the Bible was Psalms and, and Deuteronomy. And he just snatched those verses out. We know where those verses are because we have a chapter and verse, but he just pulled them from memory because there were no chapter and verse breaks uh, in, in the, the Bible in his day. So um, says again, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So let's just break it down here. It says, my son, do not forget. The word forget is uh, shakak, and it means to cease to care. It means to ignore. And I guess we could say it, it means to be apathetic. And I think it's easy for young people to be apathetic to something that an older person is saying to them. Because, you know, when you're young, especially when you're a teenager, you know everything. You don't need anybody to, to tell you anything. You know it all. I mean, I, I did. I thought I did. And then I, got, then I grew up. Then I got married. Then I started really experiencing life, and I thought, wow, my parents weren't as dumb as I thought they were. They knew what they were talking about. And, you know, Pam and I, we, we kind of reminisce on when we got married. We were like 21, right? And we looked back on our first few years of marriage, and we were like, we thought we had it all together. We thought we were on top of everything, but, man, we were stupid. You know, just to think of the things that we did and, and oh, anyway. So it says, my son, do not forget. Do not cease to care. Do not ignore. Do not be apathetic to my teachings. So, uh, as, I, as I said, this, this kind of uh, articulates and kind of points to today's generation how a lot of young people seem to be very apathetic to the Word of God because they're so enthralled with the culture around them, with the pop culture, with what's going on in social media, what's going on in politics, what's going on in entertainment. They, they, they take what a celebrity says as gospel truth because they think, oh, they're rich, they're powerful, they're famous, they must know what they're talking about. Right? I mean, you know people like that. Just because they're famous doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, it, 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 
it's almost tragically comical how you have these celebrities who want to weigh in on political issues. It's like, look, when did you get your degree in political science? You're an entertainer. What do you know about politics? You know, it, it, it just cracks me up. Just because somebody is famous and has money, they think that they know it all. So we have a whole generation that are leaning on the understanding of celebrities and athletes and musicians. And they use the platform of fame to preach their worldview, to preach what their gospel is, what their truth is. Now, if you notice and you pay attention to uh, what people are saying, they no longer say it's the truth. They will say it's my truth. That's dangerous. That is extremely dangerous because either there, you know, there's no in between. It's either a truth or a lie. Truth is not relative. Truth is not the way I see things. It's either truth, it's either true or it's false. But people today are taught to believe that they can create their own truth. My truth is different from your truth, and your truth is different from my truth. It's called existentialism, if you want to get philosophical. But people are making their own truth. It's the same as somebody saying, oh, what's right for you may not be right for me. It's moral relativism, and it's very, it's, it's like standing on quicksand. There's no sure, firm foundation, but God's word is the rock-solid bedrock of truth that we can confidently build our life upon because they're the very words of God. And God is God, so therefore he has the right to tell us and dictate to us what is right and what is wrong. Now, dictate seems like a very angry and harsh word, but God, first of all, is holy. Before anything else, before any of his characteristics, he is a holy God. And all the other attributes of God hang on his holiness, his love, his compassion, his justice, his, his, even his wrath. It, it all hangs from holiness. So holiness ensures us that God is going to do the right thing. He's going to be fair. He's going to be loving. He's going to be just. So because God is loving and God is fair and God is just, he has our best interests in mind. He just doesn't arbitrarily make rules of what's right and wrong to withhold pleasure from us or to rain on our parade or to ruin our fun. He has laid down a set of uh, codes and rules and moral guidelines so that we can live our life and live it to the full, live it abundantly. You know, you think about it, uh, you know, because I'm an American, I have to kind of refer back to some American type things, but uh, it's the land of the free and home of the brave. Why is it called the land of the free? Because people can just willy-nilly do whatever they want? No, because America was founded on Judeo-Christian values. They were founded on a set of rules and laws that creates an atmosphere of equality for everyone. It's not perfect, granted, but that's why it's called the land of the free. So isn't it ironic that the freedom that America has is due to its laws? Its laws ensure America's freedom. So God's laws ensure our freedom. Now, a lot of people may say, well, the law is a bondage. Think about it this way. What sense does it make for God to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, physical bondage, just to send them off into the desert and put them under another form of bondage called the law? This, this was a fledgling nation, a baby nation that was birthed through the birth canal of the Red Sea. And once they crossed the Red Sea, they were a people that, that no longer had to uh, bend their neck or their back to Egyptian uh, taskmasters and Egyptian rules and to their pagan gods. Because they were a newborn nation, they had to have a set of rules and laws to go by, and God set it up, all these rules, the rabbis say there's 613 commandments, he set it up in such a way that these laws cover agriculture, hygiene, um, morality, family life, you know, just everything, everything that we need to know. And so he, he, he did it for our own good because he loves us and he did it for our best. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that, that would, that it's kind of like a cruel concept if God took them out of Egyptian bondage just to place them under spiritual bondage called the law. And the law is, at, and we'll get into this here in a second because it's the second part of this verse. The law, law is not a very good or accurate translation. It's acceptable. I understand it, but there's a better, there's probably a better translation that you could use for that word. So it says, my son, do not forget, do not be apathetic to my teachings. 
Now that word teaching is the word Torah. You probably hear me say that a lot because I'm Jewish. And because Judaism is built on the Torah. The Torah is the five books of Moses. People falsely call it, or, or uh, I shouldn't say falsely, but it's probably not the best thing to refer to it as the law of Moses. Because Moses didn't make up these laws. It was God who dictated these laws to Moses to write down and to deliver to the people. So it's God's rules, God's laws, God's regulations. But the word Torah is often translated as law. And in some other versions, if you're reading from King James or another version, it may actually say laws. Do not forget my laws. But a more uh, two, two translations I think would be more appropriate in this instance is teachings or instructions. So a lot of times you'll hear in Christendom, oh, the law has been done away with. Are you saying that God's instructions has been done away with? Oh, no, no, that's not what I meant at all. Well, basically that's what you're saying because the law is God's instructions. So, uh, it's, it, so here Solomon is telling his sons, do not be apathetic. Do not cease to care. Do not ignore my laws, my teachings. And what was Solomon's laws based on? Solomon's laws were based on God's laws. The Proverbs is just uh, Solomon's way. It's basically Solomon's commentary on the 613 commandments. The Proverbs is Solomon's commentary on God's laws. Because one of the first things that Solomon did when he took the throne after his father David, according to the commandments in the Torah, in the law of Moses, so to speak, Moses commanded that when you have a king, because he predicted that in the future you're going to have a king, it's not, going to be, it's not forever going to be a theocratic rule. You're going to want to be like the other nations. You're going to want a king. And when this king comes to rule and reign over you, he is to set down, and the Levitical priest is to, to um, set before him the law, and he is to copy it letter for letter, word for word. See, back then, they didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have bookstores. You know, they didn't have the Gutenberg press. They didn't have the technology we have today to where we can just go on Amazon and say, oh, I want a King James version of the Bible. I want a new American standard. I want a new century version. And you put it in your shopping cart, put in your credit card number, and boom, a week later, you've got the word of God in hard copy at your front door. It just wasn't that way back then. So if you wanted to have a copy of God's word, you literally had to sit down and copy it yourself. Word for word. And so that's what every king of Israel was commanded to do when they took the throne, was to sit down and write out a copy of God's laws, the first five books of Moses, for themselves, for the purpose of knowing how to rule Israel rightly. So um, Solomon's laws are based on God's laws. So it says, my son, do not forget my teaching. Or do not, yeah, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. Let your heart keep my commandments. The word keep here is the Hebrew word that also means to guard, to preserve, and to protect. So it's not only just keep, in other words, not just do my laws, but, but guard these laws, protect these laws, preserve these laws. Now, if you're wanting to pass something down to your children, how would you do that? Some families have what's called traditions. And, you know, for instance, they'll have Christmas traditions. You know, maybe their tradition is they open one gift on Christmas Eve. And that's just what they do. And they've always done that. You know, or uh, maybe their tradition is the first thing they open on Christmas morning is they look in their stocking. You know, and so why do they do that? Who's the first person that said to do that? Well, we just did it when we were kids, and my grandparents did it when they were kids. And so the family gets this tradition that's passed down, and that tradition is protected. It's guarded. It's preserved because it's preserved through practice. It's passed on to the next generation. So when that next generation has a family, they're probably going to keep those same traditions. So that's what Solomon is saying. He's like, you know, keep, guard, protect, preserve my teachings, which are based on God's laws, protect them, uh, preserve them by doing them, by doing them the way that I show you, right? So that's what Solomon is saying. 
My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. It's one thing to keep something out of obligation. But when you keep something out of obligation or duty, it doesn't really mean anything to you. You know, that's, that's kind of, I, I, I liken that unto when you get a job at McDonald's. You know that McDonald's is not going to be your job for your entire life. You have bigger dreams, bigger hopes, bigger aspirations. You're going to go off to college, and you're going to get your degree in psychology, and you're going to become a doctor. Or you're going to you know, uh, go to a trade school and, and, and uh, you know, get your uh, education in elect, uh, uh, electricity, and you're going to become an electrician. It's just that um, McDonald's is a stepping stone. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to build up your, your resume somewhere. You've got to uh, get work experience somewhere. And so when you go through the McDonald's training session, you know, you, you, you just think, oh, gosh, I'm just doing this because I got to get a paycheck. I mean, you're going to do what McDonald's tells you to do because that's their protocol. That's their training. But your heart's not going to be in it. You're not going to be excited and zealous about cleaning the toilets. You're not going to be excited and zealous about scrubbing, you know, the grill at closing time. Or, or something crazy like that, you know, because it's not your passion, it's not your calling, right? And so it's one thing to keep commandments out of duty and out of obligation, but it's another one to keep them with your heart, to keep them because you want to, to keep them because you're excited about it, because you know that it's going to better you, it's going to profit you in the end and in the future. So if Solomon is talking to his sons, which is going to be the future kings and judges and ambassadors and rulers of the kingdom and of the nation, they're going to have to have a heart for God and a heart for the people in order to keep these commandments with zeal and without ritual, rote, and regulation. See, that's where the Pharisees got off track. They were keeping the commandments because God said to, but their heart wasn't in it. You know, it's, it's pretty easy not to commit adultery. Just don't jump in bed with another woman. And if I'm so busy studying God's word and so busy saying prayers and so busy being religious and so being busy being a rabbi, I'm not going to have time to jump in bed with another woman. But that's not to say that my mind and my eyes aren't going to stray and look at a woman and say, Woo, she's hot. And you start addressing her with your eyes. Job, the very first book that was ever written in the Bible is actually Job, not Genesis. And, and Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a young woman with lust. You know, so he, he took that commandment of, of adultery seriously. And you're saying, well, the Torah wasn't written then. No, but God's expectations and God's rules were passed down orally until the time of Moses. And Mo Moses codified them. So, so people already knew about God's laws and God's commandments. It's just that God... Uh, allowed them to be codified through Moses and got a little bit more specific. So it was always a moral rule not to commit adultery, and it was always of the understanding that adultery starts in your heart and in your mind before it starts with your physical body. So that's a difference between keeping something out of ritual, uh, rote, and obligation, and duty, and keeping something with your heart. And Solomon is pleading with his sons, but let your heart guard, preserve, keep my commandments. So the word commandment is mitzvah. That's a very popular word in Judaism. You'll hear that a lot. You'll hear that about as much as the word Torah. And mitzvah has been, uh, it, it's, kind of, it's, it's almost a slang word now in Judaism, which means good deeds. But literally, the word mitzvah means commandments. And the way they got from commandments to good deeds is that if you obey God's commandments, you're automatically doing a good deed. Because God's commandments are, are telling you and showing you how to be a good member of society, how to love other people, how to, you know, uh, do good. So it's, it's kind of been slang for good deeds. So it says, uh, do not forget my teachings and let your heart keep my mitzvot, my commandments. Uh, some translations may have ordinances, uh, too. So moving on to verse 2. It says, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Basically, Solomon's saying, I'm not just telling you something just because you have to do it. I'm not just raining on your parade, harshing on you and being just a cruel dictator and just telling you what to do. 
I'm telling you what to do for your own benefit, for your betterment, because it will be length of days and years of your life and peace they will add to you. How will they be length of days? Well, when I was really, really little, I was attracted to shiny things. And I remember seeing that, that orange glow, that beautiful orange glow of the coiled elements on the stove. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's pretty. I want to touch it. And my mom was like, no, don't touch it. Why? Because it will burn the baby, right? I mean, I didn't know any better. It just was a pretty color. It looked really nice. It was warm. It looked inviting. What, what's the harm in touching an element on the stove? I didn't know any better, but my parents did. And they, they kept me away from that. And guess what? That added length of days to my life. It protected me. I still have all my fingers. I have no scars on my hand because they wouldn't allow me to touch a hot stove. <laughs> it, add, it added length to my days. And it gave me peace. So that, that's what the commandments are. They, they bring length to your life and, 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 and peace to you. So let's break that verse down. It says, for length of days. The word length does mean length, obviously, but it also means structure. So it is, it is hinting at a code of ethics. It is hinting at a disciplined life for length of day, something for the long haul, right? If, 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 you're, if you're looking ahead in life and looking at something for the long haul, you've got to plan ahead and you've got to anticipate what's coming down the pike. Right? So you've got to make plans for length of days, for structure of days. It also means high. For length of days, the word days is the word yom, and depending on the context is depending on how you're going to translate that word. So yom could be literal or figurative, and here in this sense, yom is referring to days, plural, as in somebody's lifetime. So basically, uh, Solomon is saying, for as long as your days are on the earth, you know, don't forget, don't abandon my laws, and, and keep the teachings with all your heart. For as long as you live, and as long as your days are on the earth. That's what this verse is saying. For length of days, and for years of life. And it says, and peace, they will add to you. The word peace is another very familiar Jewish word, Hebrew word. The word shalom. But shalom, peace... Oh, it has such a depth of meaning. Shalom means fullness. It means completeness. It means wholeness. And when you're complete and you're whole, you're at peace, right? You're not at peace when you feel like something's off kilter or something's missing or something's not right or you lack something. You don't have peace in those times, but you have peace when you know you have everything that you need. It's like when you go camping. You go camping, and you're setting up the tent, and you know you're going to be there for the weekend. You're like, oh my goodness, did I bring the air mattress? Oh my goodness, did I bring you know, this, that, or the other? Something that's essential to make camping a pleasurable experience. And when you're looking through all your gear, and you find what you're looking for, you're like, ah, oh, you're at peace. Because you're like, oh, okay, I did bring it. You know, I can enjoy this weekend. And it says, um, for length of days and years of life, and peace, they will add to you. That word add means to increase. And I think here it's kind of implying um, not just adding numerically to the days of your life, but also it will increase your life, inc increase the pleasure, increase the joy, increase the quality of your life. Let's take, let's take the dietary laws, for instance, that, that God gave the children of Israel in the desert. He gave those laws for very specific reasons, because he knew that some animals were scavengers. And as the saying goes, you are what you eat. God has created some animals to be his garbage collectors, to eat, you know, animals that have died of itself or what have you. And also back then, they didn't have refrigeration. You just couldn't take a slab of meat and put it in the cooler. They were nomads. They were on the move, on the go. They just couldn't even dig an underground cellar for any length of time to keep it underground cool. So there were certain animals that were considered clean because they were, they were and, and, and the clean animals were the herbivores, 
And the unclean animals were either the predators, the, 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 uh, the, the meat eaters, or the scavengers. And he knew that they, that they were eating toxins and they were eating diseases. And so if you ate the meat of those unclean animals, you likely would get sick. So God didn't say, well, I don't want you to eat that because you're going to get too much enjoyment out of it. He says, I don't want you to eat that because it's going to make you sick. But if you eat the clean animals, it's going to add to your life. It's not only numerically it's going to add to your days, it's going to add enjoyment to your life. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to have diseases that the other nations have because they're eating things that they shouldn't. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Add means to increase or to exceed, right? All right, moving on to verse 3. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them about your neck and write them on the table of your heart. So let's take the first part of that verse. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. The word kindness is the word chesed, and it means loving kindness. It means mercy. It means benevolence. And Solomon knew that if his sons were going to be the judges and rulers and ambassadors and kings and authorities in the land, that to rule the people justly and rightly, they had to rule in kindness, in benevolence, in mercy. And what disturbs me about politicians today is they, they, they're worried about getting elected. And they will do and say anything in order to get elected. Not only that, they're thinking about how to advance their career. Okay, after I'm, you know, an MLA or whatever, my next goal is I want to be prime minister. So I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to, you know, and the people are going to be my stepping stones in order to get there. I'm going to do what's best for my game. I'm going to do what's going to line my pockets. But yet they were elected and they were hired to, to represent the people and to do what's best for the people. So when I pray for the rulers of our land, I say, Lord, I pray that you would just put kindness and love in their heart, that they will remember why they were elected, to represent the people and to do what's best for the people. And may they do what's best for the people, even at the cost of their own career. Because it's not about them, and it's not about their pockets and their coffers. It's about the people that they serve and represent. And Solomon was trying to instill into his sons that you, you are here for the people. You're not here for yourself. You're not here to accumulate riches and to have a good time and to have whatever you want. You're here for the betterment of the people, the betterment of the nation. So he says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Do not let benevolence, remember to be kind, merciful, and benevolent. When did David's kingdom get turned upside down and start going south? It's when Solomon's son, who obviously didn't listen to his father, took the throne. And the people said, well, your father was pretty harsh on us. Are you going to lighten the load a little bit? The elders, said, the elders told uh, Solomon's son, yeah, tell them that you're going to ease up a little bit because then you'll endear yourself to them and they'll love you. And the younger was like, no, they're just lazy good for nothings. Tell them that you thought my dad was harsh. You know, I'm going to be, you know, even harder on you. And when he did that, all of the tribes except Judah said, we're out of here. What part do we have with David? And they left, and the kingdom was split. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom comprised of the ten tribes of Israel, and then because of God's covenant with David, he only had Judah and a little bit of Benjamin and a little bit of Levi that he ruled. So obviously Solomon's son forgot this very verse that Solomon was teaching. Do not let kindness, do not let love and mercy and benevolence and truth leave you. I love the Hebrew word for truth. It is such an amazing word. Truth is the word, it's, it's pronounced emet. And I have it up here on the whiteboard. And it, comprises, it comprises of aleph, mem, and tav. Now, we here in the West, we read from left to right, correct? But in Hebrew, you read from right to left. So the Aleph is the one that looks like an X. So you go in that direction. So Aleph is the very first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
Now, when Ariana was little, I not only taught her the ABCs, I taught her the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zayin, Chet, Tet, Yud, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samech, Ayin, Fe, Zadi, Kuf, Re, Shin, Tav. And she memorized the Hebrew alphabet that way. And I put it to the tune of Jesus Loves the Little Children. Did you notice that? <laughs> so Aleph is the first letter. And that's equivalent to the Greek letter Alpha. So in Revelation where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. If he was saying it in Hebrew, he would say, I am the Aleph and the Tav. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first of the alphabet and the last of the alphabet. So you have Aleph, which is the first letter. You have Mem, which is the exact middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem. See, Aleph is, uh, before Hebrew was, was just simply letters as we know them today, they were almost like pictograms and hieroglyphics. Each letter symbolized something pictorially. And the ancient Aleph represented an ox. And you can almost see with the horns. You know how it's an X and you have the horns almost at the top? Well, an ox represents strength and virility. So Aleph represents strength. Mem looked a little different in ancient Hebrew than modern Hebrew, but Mem represents water. Represents So Mem is the middle letter of the alphabet. You know how water is life-giving, water is refreshing. We go with the flow. Then you have Tav. Tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So basically, truth is the beginning, middle, and the end. It encompasses the entire alphabet. What can you do with the entire alphabet? Well, you can rearrange the letters in so many different ways. You can write an entire book. That's how amazing the letters of Hebrew are. We get the entire Bible because of the Hebrew letters. And basically, God is saying with the word emet, with the word truth, is that truth is contained in my word. From the middle beginning to the end, you can trust it all the way through because it's rock solid. It's unshakable. It's sure. So it says... Do not let kindness and truth leave you. And remember what I said earlier in the class that, you know, truth has become relative in our culture and with, with the, the millennial generation where people are making their own truth. No, it's either the truth or it's false. It's either true or false. It's either truth or a lie. It's not my truth, your truth, his truth, their truth. There, there's got to be moral absolutes. You have to have moral absolutes in a society for a society to, to sustain itself and to survive. Because what if somebody comes along and doesn't think murder's wrong? Well, murder might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. It, yeah, that sounds bizarre. I've seen a lot of furrowed brows. Like, how could that be? But yet, yeah, that's where we're going. Because people are creating their own truth. People are creating their own truth, saying, well, I know that biologically I was born a male, but I feel like a female. I identify as a female. That's my truth. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. That's my truth. But it's not the truth. Because the truth says that if no matter what that person does to the outside of their body, no matter what they say they identify with mentally, if you draw their blood, put it under a microscope, science which deals with absolutes, which deals with black and white issues, science will still say, well, your blood says, your DNA says, you're a male. And we're seeing a lot of problems result with this thinking of my truth. Now, I've said this many times before, I love mixed martial arts. I love to watch MMA. I love to watch boxing. You know, I love to watch, you know, combat sports. But yet there is this, this man who transitioned physically to a woman, Fallon Fox, and was fighting in the women's division of mixed martial arts and almost killed another woman in the fight. Why? Because the muscle and bone structure of a woman is different than a man. You can take away the genitalia, but the muscle and bone structure is going to be the same. You can't change that. And so now you have men that have transitioned to women that are winning in weightlifting competitions. Well, duh, that's a no-brainer. Really? You expected something different? I mean, that's pretty unfair, if you ask me. 
So truth, truth is a solid foundational thing. It's not a relative thing. It's an absolute thing. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. The word leave here in the Hebrew means to forsake, to abandon, or to forfeit. It kind of relates to the, to, uh, the, the word in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, forget. Because forget means to ignore, to cease to care. In other words, to be apathetic. So if you're apathetic about something, you're more prone to abandon it. You're more prone to forfeit it. You're more prone to leave it. Now, I remember when I was little, I thought I wanted to be in the school band. I thought I wanted to learn how to play trumpet until I actually got in the class and didn't know what the heck the teacher was talking about, and I didn't show up the next, the, the, the next class. And the guy called me down from the class and said, have you quit? And like, yeah, I don't want to do this. Because I forfeited, I've abandoned that because I forgot it, because I was apathetic to it. I didn't care about it as much as I thought I did. So it says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. And it says, bind them about your neck and write them on the table of your heart. Now, a lot of times in the ancient world, the way you identified with uh, somebody is what they wore around their neck. A lot of times they would wear a signet ring, which would symbolize their authority and would symbolize their power. They wore an amulet. They wore some sort of symbol that told other people who they were. They were this priest, or they were this ruler, or they were this judge, or they were they was the head of this clan or the head of this tribe. And so what was worn around somebody's neck was, was, was an identifier. It, it symbolized authority. So it says... Basically, he's saying, let kindness and truth be what identifies you. Let kindness and truth be what you rule by. Let that be your authority. Bind them about your neck. It also kind of reminds you of fetters. And a lot of times in the slave trade, especially the North American slave trade, you'll see pictures of slaves that had iron uh, clasps around their neck and they were chained to other people. They were bound by their neck. So, you know, you, we, we can also look at this in a, another figurative way. Let love and kindness be a slave to, to kindness and truth. If you're, if you're going to let anything rule you or dictate you, you're going to be a slave to anything. Be a slave to loving kindness. Be a slave to truth because it's going to be a gentle taskmaster. Yeshua, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is a yoke? A yoke is, in a way, a form of bondage. It's, in a way, a form of servitude because you put a yoke on an animal and it does your bidding. It plows your field. It pulls your cart. It's yoked. It's doing work for you. The animal is your servant and you are the master. So if anything's going to master you, let loving kindness and truth be your yoke, be your master. Bind them about your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. The, you know, your heart is what's most dear to you. You know, think about, think about your first love the first person you ever had a crush on, or think about the time when your child was first born. Instantly, it was just imprinted on your heart. You just never knew you could love someone in an instant. And as soon as they came into this world, you fell in love with your child. It was instantaneous. That love was written on the table of your heart as a parent. Bind them about your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. You keep in your heart what's most dear and precious to you. And Solomon is saying, let God's word, let my teachings, which are based on God's word, be most precious to you. Hide it in your heart. And isn't there a verse that says, I will hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Now, as a Jewish person, what this verse reminds me of is, is what is called tefillin, or in the Greek, the phylacteries. So in Deuteronomy, uh, well, let's, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and turn there, and we'll go ahead and read that, so we'll get a better picture of this. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4, 
Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That is the John 3.16 of Judaism. Just as every Christian, most every Christian knows John 3.16, most every Jew knows Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Body, soul, and spirit. Body, mind, and spirit. And these words, what words? The words of God's law, the words of God's instructions. Let these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And isn't that what Solomon just said? Write them on the tablet or the table of your heart. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children or to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So God's word is to, to encompass your entire life. Uh, when you sit in your house, when you're eating supper, when you're doing your devotions, when, you know, when you're just together as a family, when you walk by the way, in other words, a teachable moment in life. Oh, son, look over there. Isn't that interesting? This reminds me of something from God's word. Uh, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, Make God's word their bedtime stories. When you rise up, make them, you know, the, the, a word of God before you send them off to school. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between uh, your eyes or on your forehead. So I want to stop there at verse 8. This is talking about the phylacteries, the tefillin. Now, the Jewish people, there's four different levels of interpretation. You have the, and it's called paradise in Hebrew because there's an acronym that spells out the word pardis, which is paradise in Hebrew. The first level is the Peshat level, which is the literal level. It's black and white. It says what it says. It means what it means. It's the literal interpretation. So that's the first level of interpretation. You have, uh, you have the second level, which is the remez, something that's hinted at or something that's alluded to. It's hinting about something else. It's going to take, it's like a footnote that takes you somewhere else in the Bible. So you have that level of interpretation. You have the drosh level. The drosh is the applicable. This is how you live it. This is how you apply it to your life. It's the drosh level. It's the teachable level. Then you have the sowed level, which is the spiritual or mystical level of interpretation. So the Jews... Uh, have taken this verse and they have made a remez. They've, they, they, they think, well, this could possibly be alluding to something else. I know that to bind them as a sign upon your hand means to perform, do the word of God, right? And to put them as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, let it be at the forefront of your mind. May you always think about the word of God. So that's a spiritual, mystical level, also a practical, teachable level. Always be thinking about the Word of God, always be doing the Word of God. But they wanted to take it a step further to the mystical level, to the remez, to the something that's alluded to or hinted at. And they created these black leather boxes with the black straps. And they literally bind or tie these boxes to their hand and to their forehead. Now, one day, maybe I'll show you, I'll, I'll illustrate or demonstrate it for you, but they would put it on their weaker arm, representing the weakness of their body. So if they were right-handed, they would put it on their left arm, and they would put it right close on their bicep where, where it's parallel to their heart. And in these black boxes contain passages of, of Scripture. And then they would take the leather straps and wrap it around so many times around their arm and tie it to their hand. They would also do the same with the, the box on their forehead and tie it around. And, and Yeshua warned. He said, there's nothing wrong with it, but beware of these rabbis who make their phylacteries broad. In other words, they make them so big you can see them a mile away. Why are they doing that? Because they want the attention, not because they want to keep God's commandments and keep the word of God, because they want to get noticed. Right? And it says they make their fringes long. The fringes of what you see me wear, the seat, right? Right? They would make them so they were long and dr drug the ground almost. Again, just so they could be seen. So this is what this verse reminds me of in Proverbs, where it says, Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets uh, or frontals on your forehead or between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. 
So you have the phylacteries or the tefillin, but you also have the mezuzah. The mezuzah, uh, through tradition, has become a cylindrical uh, capsule that you affix to the door frame of your door. And again, they have passages of scripture in them. But you know what? There's more than one way to keep a commandment, just like there's more than one way to skin a cat, as the saying goes. Sorry, Barb, I didn't mean that literally because I know how much you love cats. <laughs> so, like, if you wanted to take a chisel and chisel the Word of God on your doorframe, or if you wanted to take a Sharpie and write it, or paint and paint it, or stain it, or whatever, you know, that's just, to me, valid and acceptable. But it says... Uh, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. So every time a Jewish person will see the cylindrical container on the door, they will look at it, they will touch it with their hand and, you know, and, and touch their hand to their mouth. They'll kiss it out of respect and reverence to say, ah, I, I, I'm supposed to remember God's word. Right? And if you go to my house, you'll see those on every door except the bathroom. Why? Because the bathroom's a dirty place. It's an unclean place. That's why. So it's, and, so, and then it says, uh, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. Okay, that's, that's all the verses. So we're going to go back to the Proverbs here, back to, verse, uh, back to verse 3. Okay. Bind them around your neck and write them on the table of your heart. Verse 4, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. You know what? I forgot we took a lot more time because of the quiz. So we're going to pick up verse 4 next week because we've already gone past our hour, even though I haven't literally taught an hour. So we're just going to stop at verse 4. All right, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Wow, a whole hour and we just covered three verses. Your word is so full of meaning. And we haven't, we've just begun to scratch the surface of your word, O oh God. It's so eternal. It's so amazing. We, we, we can't fathom or plumb the depths of your word. And if we were to read your word through in a year, every year, for the rest of our lives, we would still not learn everything that's in your word. And it amazes me because I've habitually read your word throughout the years, and each time I read it, I see something new. You point something different out to me. You bring me to another level of learning and edification and education, and I can see the whole, the word from a totally different facet or angle. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just bless this time, that, Lord, that the word would become like fresh bread to us. It would become exciting and exhilarating, and we can't wait to dig into it again. We can't wait to pick it apart and get down, get down to the nuts and bolts of your word. So, Lord, bless the reading of your word. May we chew on these three verses throughout the week, and maybe when we're, you know, when we have a spare moment, that we would turn back to Proverbs 3, verses 1, uh, 1 through 3, and just read them over and think about them and say, Lord, what else can you show me? What else can, can, can I get out of this? And how can I live this? How can I apply it to my life? Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Plaster Rock United Baptist Church. Come join us every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Thanks for watching. Stay connected by subscribing to our other social media accounts and visiting our website at abrahamsdescendants.com.